The What Matters podcast from Foresight Climate and Energy is sponsored by Siemens Smart Infrastructure. Siemens Smart Infrastructure is shaping the market for intelligent and adaptive infrastructure by connecting energy systems, buildings and industries. Combining the real and the digital world, it enhances the way people live and work and significantly improves efficiency and sustainability. From Foresight Climate and Energy, this is What Matters, a podcast all about the energy transition and how we shift to a decarbonized economy. My name is David Weston, and joining me on our quest to tackle all things net zero is Michaela Hull from Agora Energy Vendor and Jan Rosenau from the Regulatory Assistance Project. Hi, guys. How are you this week? Hi. Thanks for having us on the show. We're very well. Very excited about this new undertaking and our first podcast uh, with Foresight. Same here. Hello, everybody. I'm very excited to be here with you. Uh, end of a busy week. But this is definitely the highlight today on this Friday in Brussels. Uh, Michaela Hull, uh, there is the senior associate at the Agora Energy Vendor Think Tank, having previously worked in the European Parliament Office of Claude Termes, the former MEP and now Luxembourg's energy minister. Michaela was also a policy analyst at the European Commission's Directorate General for Energy. Uh, Jan Rosenau, uh, meanwhile, uh, his experience in energy is as long as it is varied currently Director of European Programs at the Regulatory Assistance Project, uh, but has also uh, roles at the University of Oxford and the UK's Parliament, to name just a few, all on top of previous work for the Lawrence Barclay National Laboratory in California and the IEA. So why have we launched What Matters? Foresight Climate and Energy was launched in 2016 to provide decision makers with informed and impartial journalism on the global energy transition. In a similar way, this podcast will discuss how best to connect the dots across sectors to advance the global energy transition. Through bi-weekly debates and discussions on the energy transition in Europe, North America and around the world, What Matters will focus on how to achieve a thriving renewable energy market and Liverpool cities through the mix of policy, regulatory, financial and technology initiatives. We also want to build a community of listeners that are just like us, passionate about moving the global energy transition forward. So please don't hesitate to engage with us, give us feedback and share your recommendations for future topics and guests. In today's episode, we want to discuss where we are, how we got here and where we are going, both in terms of tackling climate change, but also as a way of introducing ourselves. Jan, to start with, with such a rich resume, have you always been interested in energy? And where does this keen interest come from? The, my interest in energy actually evolved um, as part of my um, undergraduate years. Um, yeah, I studied geosciences and ecology. And what I learned very quickly is that just analyzing you know, the impact that we uh, as a human race have on the planet just wasn't enough for me. I was always interested in understanding how can we minimize that impact? How can we um, you know, create a society that um, is more sustainable and has less negative impacts on the environment? Uh, and that's got me into energy, really. I studied um, environmental economics, uh, got passionate about um, understanding how we can you know, shift the economic incentives in the economy towards 
uh, clean energy that doesn't rely on, on burning fossil fuels and doesn't rely on uh, emitting carbon into the atmosphere. So that's what got me into energy in the first place. And it goes back uh, almost 20 years now when I first uh, started to look into these issues. And I'm just as passionate today as I was 20 years ago. That's really interesting. And Michaela, your work at um, Agora and then previously at the European Parliament and the Commission all sounds really fascinating. Did you always mean to end up working in energy? Actually, no. It looks very straight now if you look back, but it wasn't that I really planned that or that was my, you know, the topic I wanted to work on. And and when I was studying around the same time with Jan, I think also like 20 years ago, uh, my plans was like journalism, ending up in journalism maybe. And I did have an interest in in renewable energy. I, for example, my my thesis in political science, I actually wrote it about um, lobbying process around the European Renewables Directive on uh, in 2001. So it's funny because kind of it is a bit the theory of what I'm doing now. So it all looks very consistent, but uh, it just played out this way, I think. Uh, but yeah, as of now, it's 20 years uh, in EU policy making in the area. And uh, yeah, I don't intend to leave it anytime soon. Yeah, I think my journey into energy is sort of very similar. I didn't, I never really planned for it. I went to university and did a study journalism there um, and then kind of freelanced around a little bit after that, working in local news and working in um, business news a little bit. Um, there was always that sort of underlying level of environmentalism and climate change creeping into everything that we did. Um, and then I, uh, I started working for Winter Power Monthly magazine uh, in 2014. Um, so I was there for six years. And that really got me interested in renewable energy and the energy uh, space more generally. Um, and yeah, so wind power is sort of my, uh, I guess, my expertise area. Um, but I guess since joining Foresight in 2020 uh, as editor, I am now rapidly learning about the much wider energy space and how sort of complicated and how interrelated everything is. Yeah, it is It is quite a complex undertaking. I mean, just thinking about all the different end users where energy plays a role, um, it, it, it is really quite varied and we, we need so many different solutions and they're all connected uh, and increasingly yeah. integrated. And I think that's what's so fascinating about this transition, uh, that everything we do in our lives relies on having energy available uh, and everything that we do to decarbonize energy in some way or another uh, will also change how we interact with energy. So I think that makes it uh, such an uh, interesting endeavor um, and, and um, so fascinating to work in this space. Uh, I totally agree. I remember also from my work in DG Energy, um, you know, it was really tough because in a way it was like under the microscope, all the different aspects of energy policy that we need to sort out, you know, not only all the, all the different energy supplies, all the demand, but also the social aspect. And it always took us forever. And then I was always jealously looking at DG Klima. For them, it was always more straightforward. But I actually always felt this making it work on the ground uh, for the energy transition, that's actually the fun part. Um, and, and, and frankly, it's true. I mean, the more I learn about it, it's just the more I discover how much I, I still need to learn and how much more there is 
And also, I mean, the speed at which, uh, at which it develops uh, in terms of energy technology and, and their costs, it's absolutely fascinating. That's absolutely incredible. I remember in um, a 20, I think it was 2002, actually, uh, almost 20 years ago, I had a, had a um, bit of an argument with uh, two old German power system engineers who told me, you know, uh, it will never be possible to have more than 5% of renewable energy uh, contributing to electricity generation um, in, in, in Germany or anywhere else, really. And uh, the last time I checked, um, actually, Germany already managed to do, I think, more than 50% in one of the, uh, the quarters um, last year. Um, so we've, we've, got, we've moved on much, much faster than people ever thought would be possible. Uh, and that is, um, is so encouraging to see. There was a one-page advertiser in all the, the big German newspapers about this statement that, they, that the grid cannot take more than 4 or 5%. I have a copy of that. Um, of the, uh, yeah, I still have that on file. It's a bit blurry, uh, but I do have it. And uh, it, it, it is incredible. Some of the same uh, companies that have put out that statement are now investing so heavily in renewables. Yeah. Um, and actually are at the avant-garde and pushing it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's crazy. I mean, I'm, I'm a relative newcomer to the industry. I guess, you know, I've only been in it sort of seven, six, seven years compared to you guys. Um, but even when I first started, they were talking about, you know, 20% renewables, 25% renewables. And in, yeah, in that short time now, people are, you know, the UK's maxing, maxing out at sort of 80, 90% renewables at some point uh, during particularly windy days, perhaps. But it's crazy how quick that is, how quick it has changed. Do you think it's happening almost too fast? No. <laughs> um, I mean, it is, uh, I mean, the speed at which the policies are developed, you know, if I, if I look back at when I was still with the commission, it was all about um, the, the European Green Deal, no? that which is the new overarching policy framework that was launched in 2019. And it basically means um, revising all sets of legislation and look to what extent they are in line. It's a huge endeavor. Uh, but actually, when you think, so this, of course, is a massive amount of work, and that's what keeps the whole Brussels world busy at the moment. So, but if you think about the speed at which actually the change is happening, uh, I think uh, Vice President Timmerman said it quite clearly somewhere around the uh, at the margins of the COP that we are nowhere near the pace we need. And um, like what, we, what basically we took in Europe 20 years to get up to our 20% of renewables in our overall energy consumption. And we will need to double that, but only we have now nine years to do that. And this pace, we are not there yet. I read yesterday on Twitter, a German, um, a German um, uh, academic working in, 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 on the energy transition, he said, we would need seven windmills in Germany to be deployed every day for the next 30 years. At the moment, the state of Bavaria deploys seven windmills per year. So that's where we are. And that's where that we ought to go. Yeah. Is that, so is that, a, is that a policy thing? Is that an industry thing? How do we get that, that speed? Well, I mean, when you look at um, how this has been achieved in the past, it was strongly supported uh, by, by national level policies, 
the emissions trading system played a minor role because carbon prices were so low. I mean, it's well remember times when there was less than five euros per ton of carbon. Uh, we've seen days now where it's been above 60 euros per ton um, and it's going to keep going up. Um, so that hasn't played a major role. It was more national level policies, really, that um, that moved us from um, uh, you know electricity system that was highly reliant on on, on coal and gas uh, generation uh, towards more renewables. Uh, and clearly, I mean, Germany was a, was a leading country with a feed-in tariffs uh, scheme. But I think in recent years, we, we've just seen that because the costs have come down so much for renewables, uh, that a lot of the new investments are happening organically. And they're happening because investors know that carbon prices are going to increase further. Um, and, and simply because the costs of renewables have fallen to levels never seen before, uh, in many cases, you know, the cheapest form of generation is now renewable, um, which was completely different. You know, 20 years ago, uh, renewables were significantly more expensive uh, than fossil fuels. That has fundamentally changed. Uh, so I think we will need less policy support uh, going forward in the form of direct subsidies. <clears throat> the, the key policy support that we will need uh, looks very different. I think this is about re redesigning energy markets to get, give renewables a better chance uh, to play in those markets. Uh, it's taking away uh, incentives and hurdles um, that currently work against decarbonization, but it's not so much any more direct uh, subsidies that we've seen, especially uh, you know, in the noughties in those years where governments invested very heavily in su subsidizing uh, renewable generation. And if I may add to that, I think um, the recent package that the European Commission proposed, uh, the so-called Fit for 55 package that came out in the summer, um, I think it summarizes um, also the, you know, the policy conclusions very well in that it basically says, okay, um, because for a long time it was, there was in the commission also the discussion, ETS, what else is needed? And I think the conclusions they come with now are really very, I think it's very solid. And basically they say, we need all of it. We need carbon pricing. We need that signal. Uh, we need, uh, you know, like um, how Jan was just describing, we really need to make sure that the, the market players can take up uh, these new technologies, so remove the barriers. We need regulation also and standards that, for example, comes in with the, you know, with the cars, with the uh, CO2 standards for cars. And then finally, we also need, you know, to cushion any any effects and they, they put forward additional new money, especially for the vulnerable consumers and the more vulnerable regions. And I think that's actually a fine conclusion of, you know, the first bit of this journey, that this is all what it needs to happen. Yeah. Just to build on that, if I may, um, I mean, we, we've, we've in the past, I think we've seen um, the energy transition very much as sort of cleaning up the electricity sector. You know, most of the focus was on on that. Um, and the challenge has just gotten a lot bigger because uh, it, there's widespread agreement that we're going to have to um, at least double, maybe even triple the electricity generation uh, to electrify lots of end users. So now suddenly we're talking about other sectors, transport, buildings, but also industry, where previously we've burned fossil fuels um, to, to um, create the services that we need. And now we're going to have to electrify those end users using renewable electricity. So the total amount of renewables that we need uh, is way above what we used to think 15 years ago. 
Absolutely. It's interesting that the so the market's obviously indicating and showing where we need to go and what it needs to improve the the efficiency and the and the carbon um, levels of the energy sector. But there's also the is there not the case of how do we still transition away from the current um, forms of generation? You know, Germany's still uh, looking at you know building coal plants. I know the UK was looking at one as well. How do we shut those areas down how do we get away from them if we know what we need to get to but obviously the delay is because there's these incumbent forms of generation as well um i think definitely that uh, that deserves all attention and actually it did get that attention uh, apparently for the first time just now at the cop because i read somewhere that for the first time the text refers to fo- the role of fossil fuels and uh, and and calls for a phase out of ineffective fossil fuel subsidies, um, and it's true. I mean, it is really true that the GHG reduction that you would get from a faster phase out of uh, of coal in the European electricity system are massive. And um, um, if you look at the scenarios, and the IEA was also saying that more or less. Um, you need to have phased out coal by 2030 in Europe. Uh, um, and the power mix has to be net zero by 2035 already. So they are the first ones to move. Uh, and for that to achieve, you basically have to, uh, um, have to in- indeed accelerate this a lot. But the signs are actually quite good. And it can happen really quickly. I mean, um, just building on what you said, uh, Michaela, um, in, in the UK, uh, where, where I live, um, I remember well that coal contributed, I think it was up to f- almost 40% of electricity generation in 2012. You know, that's, there's a nine years away. Um, and now coal um, is less than 2%. Uh, and the last coal power plant in the UK is scheduled to be taken offline in 2024. So this this um, process of getting out of coal um, has, has happened much faster than most people would have predicted. Uh, I mean, with the change in the government in Germany, um, we, we, we see an acceleration, don't we? I mean, from 2038 to 2030, that is, that's a big change already um, and with the carbon prices going up perhaps we will be surprised how quickly uh, it, it happens once once uh, operating these plants becomes um, you know more and more important um, and more and more expensive so what does the energy transition then mean to you what are we trying to achieve through this energy transition well since well usually i have to explain uh, what energy energiewende means, namely energy transition. And now I have to explain what we mean with the energy transition. But okay, since it's our name, we should have a response. Um, what it means for me, it means that you move away from an economic and industrial model that is clearly not good for the health of the planet or for our own health. And to go to a system uh, that works with the land and uh, the sea and the biosphere that we have, uh, and so our kids have enough room to have a prosperous future and also to, you know, that they are able to design the world they want to live in and not just have to deal with whatever we have left them to deal with. Yeah, I mean, ultimately, I think the tr- energy transition in my mind is is about um, reducing uh, greenhouse gas emissions 
um, uh, pretty much to zero um, for, you know, from all the areas where energy is being consumed. Um, but doing that without um, you know, completely shutting down um, industries, without um, uh, you know, heating our homes or, or you know, using transportation, uh, and that's a big challenge. So it's not just about um, uh, doing away with the services that we've you know, come to appreciate in our daily lives. I think it's just finding different ways of delivering them that doesn't impact on the planet. And that's really hard. Uh, and at the same time, of course, there are countries around the world um, where we have to increase the amount of energy that's being used um, because people don't have access to electricity uh, and um, may not be able to uh, you know, heat their homes properly or may not be able uh, to participate in, in, in other activities in the economy. And, and that's going to be um, a massive challenge you know, to expand the amount of energy we use, but also bring down emissions to zero. Um, that, that I think that for me is the energy transition um, in a nutshell. It's really getting us to zero in all of the sectors where we use energy, not just the power sector. I think that's so important that we sometimes get sort of lost in a discussion about electricity, which currently is, you know, that is just part of the energy sector. It's, 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 it's not everything. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a small but important part, but it's, 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 not, um, it's not everything. Absolutely. And how close do you think we are to achieving these goals? We're a long way from that. Um, I mean, in terms of, you know, when you look at the latest um, carbon emission figures that were just recently published, um, you can see um, they may have come down a little bit. Um, you know, COVID have certainly helped, but the, the pace at which we reduce emissions uh, is simply not, not um, uh, it's not happening fast enough. Um, so we need to really speed this up um, if we want to meet the climate goals. That's pretty obvious. Um, I think it depends way, whether you look at it at a global level, uh, which is more frustrating perhaps because that's where emissions have gone up uh, over the last 10 years, not down. But when you look at specific countries and specific sectors, there are signs uh, for optimism and for being hopeful, I think. Yeah, but it's like you said, um, focusing only on electricity there is really misleading and, and, uh, and, uh, you know, um, actually there are areas which will be much more difficult, uh, to, to decarbonize, which haven't uh, received that much, uh, attention. I would even start with heating, at least in the, in the European debate. Um, it was always difficult because, Whilst for electricity, you had the internal market. So, you know, at, at an EU level, you could, you could do a lot. But heating and buildings was, is, is, is national or even, I mean, even subnational and local. So it was always a bit more difficult, but it's much more complex to address uh, and frame it properly. And uh, we haven't even started to get into the whole uh, land use and agriculture area. Um, I think uh, this uh, this this will be. I mean, has has now become also uh, uh, has come into the focus. But I think a lot of uh, research will still need to have to to be put into that. Absolutely. So, what are the big levers then for the energy transition? We've we've discussed moving to uh, the you know, the electricity grid and moving to renewables. But what else is there that can help accelerate this? Well, the question is whether you define it in terms of technology or, or um, what policies are needed um, and regulations are needed to um, deploy those technologies. And it, it's, you know, you, we need both. 
Um, and the, I think the good news is that we already have most of the technologies available that today um, that we need uh, to reduce emissions um, and to decarbonize energy. Um, the, the main challenge is to deploy them at the right pace um, uh, and in those places where they're most needed. Uh, and that's where we need to do better. Um, I mean, the key levers, um, I think we talked about some of them already. I mean, having a carbon price has certainly helped uh, with the power sector decarbonization. Uh, Michaela mentioned heating, um, which is an area I spent uh, most of my career on, sort of trying to understand how to do that. Um, and, it, and it's really complex and you need a whole um, range of policy instruments. I think ultimately, if we want to meet the climate goals, uh, there is no way around um, having some um, mandates of some kind, similar to what we've done uh, already with car manufacturers, uh, to simply stop uh, the sale uh, of technology that uses fossil fuels. Uh, you, if you think about the life cycle of some of these technologies, if you buy a new heating system that could well operate 15, 20, maybe even 30 years. So if we install these systems uh, in uh, you know, the 2040s, uh, they will still be operating on fossil fuels well into the 2050s, maybe 2060s. So that's a useful way of working backwards from when can we install the last system that burns fossil fuels? When do we, do, do we need to stop doing that? Um, so having some form of a regulatory backstop, I think, is a very important lever, especially in those sectors where uh, so far progress um, is minimal. Yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, we discussed earlier about how the the market is kind of accelerating, and in in some ways, policy needs to get out out of its way. But now you're saying there needs to be a role for policy to help ad accelerate it. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, if you uh, look at the latest uh, IA report, Net Zero Twenty Fifty, that was published in August this year. Uh, one of the things that made headlines was that they said after 2025, you should no longer install new heating systems that use fossil fuels. Uh, that was purely based on their modeling. You know, they were modeling the, the most cost effective pathway uh, to meeting the climate goals. Uh, and this was one of their key recommendations. Actually, it was the first recommendation. Uh, it, there's a key graphic in the report where they kind of show emissions going down and they have all the policy recommendations stacked on top of that uh, along a, aside the timeline for emissions going down. The first one is stop installing fossil heating systems in buildings uh, after 2025. Um, so that, that, that's, I think that's why... Um, uh, you know, this is this is an important element, um, uh, and and that's where policy needs to do something because just providing incentives uh, is just not going to move people away fast enough. Fossil fuels are cheap, um, especially uh, in in the building sector, uh, and the alternatives. Um, are often more expensive. And unless there's regulation and financial support and a change of pricing, which is something that uh, Michaela can probably talk about because that's happening right now um, in, in Berlin where the government is reviewing electricity levies to encourage more uptake of things like heat pumps. Unless that happens, it's gonna be difficult to see how we can accelerate uh, and uh, the pace of change. I mean, um, especially for the heating sector, I think, uh, one has to really have clear in, the, in, in, in our minds how not framed it was until recently. Because if you compare it directly with the transport sector, where we are now in a relatively comfortable position with the e-vehicles uh, uh, uptake, um, there was there was framing in uh, through these CO2 standards for cars. In the power sector, you had the carbon price. But in the heating sector you had actually nothing. And as uh, Jan said, what you had is 
subsidized gas prices and relatively very high levies and charges on electricity, which is basically the perfect setup for a heat pump not to find its way through it. And um, I think, uh, and that, and then in addition to know that um, you will also need uh, to, in many cases, even expand district heating, which is which requires a lot of planning and also investment. This sector will really uh, require a lot of attention and also investment uh, in the next years. I'm interested in uh, putting a view to you, Michaela, and see what you how you respond because you worked for the Commission um, for for many years, and this is something I told the European Parliament last week in a hearing. Um, I mean, my sense is that in the heating sector, we uh, unlike the power sector, we really deal with uh, multiple policy policy silos, is what I call it, within the Commission. So you have a team that works on um, energy efficiency. You've got another team that works on uh, you know, appliances and, and, and heating equipment. Then you've got uh, another team that looks at energy taxation, um, uh, you know, the ETS. So that it, it's, it's essentially, it's, it's um, allocated to lots of different units. Um, and it's not very well integrated because we've been pushing for more efficiency of fossil heating systems on the one hand, we've pushed for more renewables on the other hand, um, and we also now want to push for electrification. Uh, but so far, it, it, you know, there are signs of integration with the Green Deal, but so far it, it is still operating within these silos. I, I will have to agree. I mean, I was I, I was actually part of those silos, and uh, um, it, it's true that there's no... Um, there is no coordinate policy on heating, which it would have to be. But it's uh, it's it's if if at if at all you would have a matrix of uh, you know um, the the fuels um, and then the sectors. That's true. I mean, in in the end, I worked on one side of the silo on this when I was working on energy efficiency in buildings. And, you know, one of my jobs was to define what a nearly zero energy building is, where renewables come in. And uh, then when a few years later, I started working in the renewables unit. And um, you would think if it's the same person that at least here the information would flow. But, you know, already within one directorate general, two different policies, they are apart, energy efficiency and renewables. It was very difficult. And, uh, yeah. Yeah, I think it's it, it's true. It's true that uh, uh, th that this needs to be thought together. But maybe I, I allude to it already before. I think part of the problem is that um, it, it's more difficult to address it. Or it was was you know for subsidiarity reasons. It subsidiarity is one of those EU jargons, but it basically means the EU doesn't intervene in areas that are dealt with better at the national level, and a lot of those heating related questions um, are in fact at national level. So you could you never had this kind of uh, systematic way of addressing it. it it only now the, the dots are being connected, I think, and you see it emerging. Thanks again to Siemens Smart Infrastructure for supporting what matters. Combining the real and the digital world, Siemens Smart Infrastructure enhances the way people live and work and significantly improves efficiency and sustainability. Building on that point of the, the connecting those dots and the, maybe the silos breaking down, 
Is there a, an increase in the momentum behind the energy transition and the talk behind the energy transition? And what do you think has caused that in, in recent years? Well, there, there totally is. I mean, it, in, in, in all of the areas. And I think that's driven um, by multiple developments. I mean, one is that we now have um, climate goals that are no longer you know, 60% reduction or 80% reduction by 2050. But uh, we're talking about climate neutrality, net zero, uh, you know, zero emissions power sector by 2035 um, uh, in Europe, um, uh, or also at national level. So the, the level of ambition uh, that we talk about um, has um, changed completely and will continue to change. I, I think that is not the end of it. You know, we will see, we will see um, more calls for early action, even more um, ambitious targets, bringing that forward from 2050. Um, I wouldn't be surprised by that. We have already seen that um, you know, in several countries where previously we had a target for 2050, now it's 2045, um, and there are calls for 2040. Um, so that, that is, I think, one area that really changes the debate around energy and has accelerated a focus on the energy transition. Uh, and I think at the same time, it's innovation. I mean, you know, Michaela, uh, you mentioned electric vehicles here. Um, you know, I, I remember very well the first electric vehicle um, I drove, um, a friend of mine had, and um, I think you could drive it for something like um, 40 or 50 kilometers. Then you had to charge it for three hours uh, to be able to then go on for another 40 kilometers or so. Um, and it was a tiny uh, it's tiny. Uh, it wasn't even a car. It, it wouldn't even qualify as that, I think. But it, it was. It was basically not something you could you could ask the majority of people um, to to use instead of an internal combustion engine. Well, now when you look at what's available, um, you can get cars with almost the same range as a petrol diesel car, uh, better performance, cheaper to run. Uh, so that yeah, that's just one area where technological innovation uh, has meant that we suddenly have other options that are low carbon, but also more convenient um, and have a better performance, uh, but don't result in the same emissions. So I think it's those two things that have really changed, uh, you know, higher climate goals, um, much more focus on that, but also the technology has just gotten better. Renewables have gotten cheaper than fossil generations as had before in some countries. Uh, and that really gives us a unique opportunity um, to move much faster. And if you look at, you know, the EU policy framing, if I only compare it to last time round, the, the, the so-called clean energy package that was 2016. And there you could still see. So the, the, the thrust of it was how much can we afford? Whereas with the Green Deal, I think it's a whole new narrative when it is presented as the growth strategy. And it's actually for the first time thinking from the back end, what actually do we need and how do we get there? It's quite, it's quite phenomenal if you think about that. And, uh, and the, combining this with what Jan was explaining that we ha now have uh, this law in place that basically bind is binding for the member states and, and the EU institutions. Uh, it is, and also what, what I noted is um, the support from businesses. Um, also, I remember when von der Leyen, the, the president of the uh, of the European Commission, when she went, when she announced for the first time this new ambition before the Parliament, this at least minus fifty five, 
there was strong support from uh, from from the business com community who who came out just before and said we support this please give us this frame we will deliver but we need the rules to be in place and we need to be clear about where the journey is going absolutely i was going to say is the role of the private sector uh, you know we've spoken a lot about policy and regulation so far today but the the role of the private sector in driving the energy transition uh, is that um, is that where the momentum is coming from? Well, it's certainly one of the areas. I mean, in the private sector, um, I, I, you know, I, I see companies that are really innovative, pushing it and want more ambition. They want to move faster, and they want government um, to actually, uh, you know, maybe mandate certain things, maybe set out more clearly where the where the where the journey is going. Uh, but you also um, see companies that do the opposite. You know, who want to slow down progress, um, who push um, for delay, um, and um, it'll be interesting to see um, you know, what the long-term impact will be on companies that are uh, trying to delay rather than be part of the solution. Um, I would have thought that that's a very risky strategy. You know, if, if you believe you can just simply maintain your business model that's constructed around uh, fossil fuels and hope that's going to be um, extended um, for the foreseeable future. We have seen in other industries uh, being completely disrupted before. I mean, the car industry is an interesting example of, of, of that, uh, but we're going to see similar things in other sectors. Um, and uh, it'll be interesting how the private sector uh, will react uh, and respond. But I think there's, as Michaela says, there's now much more support um, of players that previously may have slowed down things are really asking for more action. Why do you think that is? Why do you think there are still players and companies uh, and politicians that are... Uh, trying to slow the energy transition down surely the the argument's been made that it's irrefutable that we need to do something about the climate change whether you agree it's human caused or not surely even if that argument was not did not exist living in a, in a world that didn't pump carbon dioxide into a into the atmosphere is a much nicer one than one that does so why is there that reticence to uh, change well you ha you you have um massively the incumbents have a massive interest in 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 in, in let allowing uh, their business model to continue uh, and i think that's totally legitimate if i were one of them i would argue for the same thing but then um and well you know that's for example at the moment happening around this debate uh, around hydrogen and and the role it should play where uh, a colleague of mine published yesterday, and I, I just like the sentence because it summarizes it, it very briefly. Experts ag agree that hydrogen, you know, has a crucial role, but secondary to electrification. Yet not all lobbyists do. Um, so it's obvious. I mean, they try to be part of where things go, and 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 that's exactly it. That that the job of a of a policymaker or of you know, someone like Jan and me who work in think tanks that try to keep the big picture in mind uh, is to make sure that indeed the whole journey does not get, uh, you know, the, the costs do not uh, get out of and uh, do not get uh, um, crazily deviated from the cost effective path. So, and that basically most of it happens fast. But I think it's totally legitimate for someone who had a, a good business going on and was part of the system until now and to, to want to continue. 
And from the perspective of policymakers, um, I guess it depends what your values are and what what um, why you are why you are um, um, you know in 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 politics in the first place. Um, but clearly, the energy transition also means. Uh, that there will be um, a change, right? I mean, there will be a change to the status quo. Some um, some people will feel w this change um, uh, more than others. And if we're not careful, um, you know, for example, with things like pricing carbon, um, then especially the poorest uh, will feel the consequences of that. And that's, of course, an opportunity for politicians to take advantage of, um, to construct a narrative around the energy transition um, that suits their own needs um, and and wins them votes. Um, I mean, we have on the extreme end of this, we have seen uh, politicians who actually don't believe in climate change and uh, who are climate deniers. Um, what is interesting there is to see that, you know, they've moved on from where we were maybe 10 years ago um, or 15 years ago to say, oh, climate change doesn't exist um, to now accepting, all right, we're going to not going to win that argument. You know, that argument is lost. But they now moved on to a discussion to say, well, yeah, climate change may exist, but it's just too expensive to, you know, we can't do anything about it without ever offering an alternative. Uh, you know, they always sort of say, uh, but, you know, how much it will cost all the things we can't do, uh, but they never offer not a credible alternative because in the, in the end of the day, they don't believe that there's a problem to be solved. But that's um, um, luckily in most countries and also in the European Parliament, it's a small minority um, of people who are just out there to avoid any meaningful action on climate change. I think there are legitimate concerns about the impacts, especially the social impacts of the energy transition, and those need to be discussed. I do sometimes, however, feel that the scale of the whole endeavor and really how fast things have to change, that that awareness is maybe not like how urgent this climate crisis is and how fast things have to change. I'm not sure that it's fully present everywhere. And frankly, I don't even exclude myself. I remember that I mean, I was working in the area and uh, it was actually with this Friday for Futures, you know, that kind of woke me up again on actually the whole science behind it and how urgent it actually was, if you see what I mean. So, you know, if uh, all your life you've been, I don't know, you know, if you're not really in the area, say you've done trade agreements um, to now adopt this whole new uh, approach, it takes a time. It takes some time, you know, the <laughs> same way as we say we need the skilled people to renovate the houses energy efficiently. I guess you, you also need to, this change needs uh, a different mindset, basically. Uh, Jan, have you recognized a sort of a, a refocused or re-energizing uh, of your sort of work since Fridays for Future and, and the more the civil uh, movement behind climate change? Yeah, I mean, it's not just Fridays for Future. I think it's also organizations that Extinction Rebellion, which, of course, are very visible um, in this space, uh, not just in the UK, but also in other countries, uh, and the media coverage around that, um, which, I mean, often focuses on the method of, of protest rather than the aims and goals of these organizations. Um, but I think certainly that, that yeah, it, 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 it has changed the, the public awareness of this. Um, and I mean, my, my own my own thinking has has also as Michaela says has, has changed. I think um, I've I've always been um, you know working on um, driving change, but I think with 
with the time that we have left to meet those goals and just translating that into what needs to happen, um, it really brings brings home that um, idea that we need to um, not just tweak a few policies and regulation here and there, but we need to really um, do something quite uh, quite radical uh, to make this happen. It's not going to be something that will just um, gradually um, uh, happen over time. We you know we we, we need to start tomorrow um, <laughs> or yesterday um, to get this done. So it's um, I, I think what is important you know, when when we when we um, talk about Fridays for Future and Extinction Rebellion, a lot of the debate has been focused on targets um, that you know that that uh, was triggered by by the by the protests and and that's good. But I'm I'm on this gets us maybe into the discussion around COP. Um, uh, it, it's also something I'm a bit concerned about because it's very easy for politicians to sign up for targets in 30 years and say, are we going to be net zero? Are we going to be climate neutral um, uh, in, in 20 years, 30 years, uh, when they you know no longer uh, in power, they no longer have any responsibility. Whereas what really matters isn't targets, what really matters is action on the ground. And there's sometimes a disconnect between this discussion about ambition levels and is it 1.5 degrees or is it less or is it more? But really what matters is the specific and concrete policies that are implemented. And if there isn't the connection between them, then to be quite frank, then having those targets in place uh, doesn't have a lot of impact. I totally agree with you, Jan. I totally agree. So when I heard what came out of the COP, you know, like, and that was the, the good part, no, that they basically advanced this deadline uh, and said next year, the 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 parties should come with uh, with higher with um, with higher ambition plans. My first thought was like, oh no, are we going to have in two thousand twenty two another target discussion in Europe? This is it's really this would really not be helpful. I think. I mean, the action and the urgency of things to kick have to kick off now is really a message that I, I hope will not get lost in this. Um, and actually, there's so much that can be done already in terms of making a market more flexible, etc. Uh, that's really the most important thing right now to really m move up a gear. Also, because we have all this money at the table at the moment from the recovery plans, which should be could put to good use in that respect. Absolutely. So uh, in that regard, where is the energy transition going? What are the next steps that need to be taken? And maybe moving on slightly, if you could look into your crystal balls in say 10 years, 20 years time, what does the energy landscape look like? Um, so I think one of the, um, the key developments that will um, accelerate over the next 10 years uh, I think is electrification. That is a game changer, um, not only in, not just in the transport sector. Uh, we already, we, you, you can already see that in the sales figures for electric vehicles in many countries. That is going to happen, um, no doubt. Um, so we're going to see in 10 years time, um, a much higher share of um, electric vehicles on the roads uh, than we have currently. 
Um, we will see an increase share of electrified buildings that is happening already with new buildings. You know, when you look at the stats, you can see that in some countries, almost all of the new buildings are fully electric. But we're also going to see an ex uh, you know, many more existing buildings converting to fully electric. Um, so that's going to be one of the trends to see a lot more action on electrification. Um, I think we see um, interesting developments with hydrogen. I mean, there's a huge need for green hydrogen to be upscaled. There's, there's a lot of investment coming forward right now. Um, the return on investment um, for these projects is attractive. So I think in 10 years time, we will see um, what has happened. We will have a much better idea um, how economic is hydrogen? Where does it make sense? Uh, Michaela mentioned the study from her colleague um, that was published this week, um, and that asks a lot of interesting questions. I think in 10 years' time, we will have answers to some of those questions and have a much better idea of where hydrogen sits within all of that. Um, I think there was a second part to, to your question, um, uh, David. Could you just um, uh, remind me what that was? Uh, yeah, so sort of the next steps that need to be taken. Well, the next steps that need to be taken is um, translating those targets and ambitions uh, into real action. Um, uh, and, and that requires moving away from gradualism and incrementalism um, towards working backwards from the targets, working out what needs to happen to meet them uh, and design policies, markets, regulations around that. Michaela, what does your crystal ball look like? Well, maybe we looked into the same crystal ball. Um, I would say pretty much the same. Also, I think we will probably be surprised by many things that, that we maybe didn't see coming. I, I'm, I'm always surprised by the pace at which things, topics change, uh, and, uh, very quickly. But I would generally agree this with the, the trends that Jan has described. And, um, I was just the other day thinking about what will it have done to the public attitude towards these things in 10 years time and well i i happened to work in a previous life in the commission before i worked on energy i actually worked in consumer protection and happened to be in charge of the tobacco directive so it was the piece of legislation that basically introduced the smoking bans in europe in all bars and restaurants and and you know also these these this the warning images on the boxes etc and I remember, you know, I remember how the, the public perception and the perception also at the time when we proposed to do this ban and then the fear that all the bars and restaurants and cafes would go bust. Uh, and then today, if you look back and you'd say, seriously, we were sitting in a restaurant with everyone smoking while we were eating and you cannot even imagine it anymore. But the, the, the resistance was was very, very strong at the time. And I wonder if maybe 10 years from now, we would already see similar signs of, of this, that people's, you know, people that start to get used to the heat pump and, and, and wonder however it could have been diff different. Yeah, I remember how light bulbs got banned, right? Um, the incandescent light bulbs got banned. Um, there was huge uproar um, and, and people were, I think, stockpiling um, incandescent light bulbs coming out there saying, I'm going to keep using incandescent light bulbs until I die. You know, I will never live without them and uh, all the alternatives um, don't work. And, and now, I mean, it's pretty much become the you know, LEDs are everywhere and you go to any fancy cafe and they have these kind of fake incandescent light bulbs with LEDs, essentially, that look like incandescent. Yeah. Uh, 
so the technology has moved on and it just helped us um, to use a lot less electricity but delivers a better service. Um, so And public opinion has changed. I don't think anyone is, maybe there's a few um, uh, you know, fanatics who still obsess about incandescent light bulbs, but I think the public at large probably forgot what they were and they've just gotten used to the fact that we don't have them anymore. Absolutely. I think from my part, I think what I'd like to see in sort of 10 years time is a much more interconnected energy system in the sense that, uh, you know, the country, there's a much more free flow of power across countries and the power that's generated in Norway can power homes in Germany and things like that. And it, you know, take the resources that we have, the North offshore wind in the North Sea and really direct them that into our homes much more efficiently as well. Is that a, a, a realistic goal? I think absolutely. Uh, and, and, and connectivity, I think, comes in many disguises. I mean, there is the the physical um, connectivity and integration of the European um, energy sector and especially the electricity sector. We, you know, we know having um, more resources connected across multiple geographies means that you have a much larger pool um, for generation and also flexibility and that lowers the, the system cost dramatically and also increases reliability. But I think there's also a, a different aspect of um, connectivity, which is connecting the end user um, uh, with the energy system in much different ways. You know, we, we, we used to have a centralized system where the end user is passive and is essentially just receiving energy, plugging in, but not doing very much to interact with the system. And that is changing already. I mean, we have people generating their own electricity, having batteries, providing flexibility services, um, and maybe even trading energy with their peers. I mean, these kinds of things are possible because of digitalization and you know more connectivity between the different parts of the system. So I think you're right, David, we're gonna see a lot more connectivity, but I think also connectivity sort of beyond just um, kind of upstream um, uh, yeah, electricity generation infrastructure, but also much more downstream uh, consumer um, uh, consumers interacting with each other and the energy system. Yeah, absolutely. Um, just finally then, uh, a little feature that we're going to hopefully have uh, in each of our episodes uh, is what, what caught my eye uh, this week. Uh, just a little, it could be a tweet, it could be a, an article, it could be a, a new report out, uh, but something that uh, really kind of sparked your interest uh, and caught your eye this week. I, I'm going to start, um, I saw a tweet, uh, is a journalist, David Shepard from the Financial Times, um, he's the energy editor there, and he shared the uh, carbon market uh, pricing following the result of uh, COP26 and just seeing how the, the response of the carbon market um saw carbon prices shoot up after the sort of decision to phase down coal, I think was the ultimate um, wording in the end. I just thought that was really interesting. It obviously shows that um, carbon pricing uh, is a, an important aspect of the energy transition, um, but also perhaps that COP26 wasn't a, a, a complete failure. That's interesting. Um, and and um, uh, yeah, I've seen the same piece actually. And uh, and finally, very insightful. Um, and, and as I said before, I mean, carbon prices being less than five euros is not that long ago. And and and, and now we're talking uh, about carbon prices you know, possibly um, approaching a hundred euros per ton and, and beyond, uh, which is unheard of and really is is a game changer. What caught your eye this week? Well, I I guess we were all digesting the COP 
that what was coming out of the COP26. Well, I mean, it's true with the spike in the price. You're right. Um, I mean, what I found, I, in a way, when I read, I don't remember who it was, was also a tweet who, who basically said that for the first time they, they made a statement about fossil fuel su subsidies. And I couldn't help but think, but what was written in all those preceding COP documents? It seems so obvious. So, um, I am, so my conclusion, and I was always a bit, you know, a bit further away from this climate negotiating, but, um, that's one thing that it needs. But like, like we said already previously during this talk, action on the ground. This is really much more important. It will set the framework, but you need much more than that. And, uh, yeah, as I said, I haven't followed so closely these things, but that kind of caught my attention. Yeah, absolutely. I, I had the same thought. I was like, well, why, what have they put in the other 25 exactly. COP? Like, what did they write about? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and will it take 25 more COPs to really get rid of those subsidies? Absolutely. Yeah, no, absolutely. this would sound uh, too pessimistic and cynical for ending this podcast, but... Uh, <laughs> Um, yeah, absolutely. Uh, and Jan, anything that caught your eye this week? Well, could I have two? Um, uh, <laughs> uh, one, one is um, just to reiterate um, yeah, that the report that um, Agora and Agivanda put out there about hydrogen, if you haven't seen it, um, is really worth a read. Um, 12 insights about hydrogen. Uh, I read it already halfway through, uh, plus executive summary, and uh, shared it on social media. And it gets a lot of attention, and I recommend you reading it. The second item um, is a report by Acer, um, the um, Association of Regular Energy Regulators in Europe, and they have uh, published their perspective on what happens with rising electricity prices in Europe. What's driving that? Um, you know, what's what's the key uh, lever that that pushed electricity prices? Uh, to unknown heights recently, um, and they they identify that it's clearly linked um, to gas prices internationally rising. That's the main reason for it, uh, and they have lots lots of interesting analysis in their report. So that's the second report that I saw and read with great interest, and highly recommend um, uh, our listeners to take a look at. David, just for the record, I did not obligate Jan to promote the, <laughs> this report of my colleague. But I have to say, I really also enjoyed reading it because I think it's really punchy and to the point. And I did not ask him to mention it. We will bear that in mind. Hopefully, I'm sure we'll do an episode on all about hydrogen very soon and maybe we can get your colleague on uh, to have a chat about the report. Uh, Thank you so much, guys. Uh, that's all we have time for today. If you have any thoughts or questions about anything uh, we have said on today's podcast, you can reach us on our Twitter accounts. I'm on at Dave W underscore Foresight. Michaela? I'm on at CitizenSane1. And Jan? I'm on at Jan Rosenau. Very good. You can also tweet the show at What Matters Pod or email us at show at whatmatterspodcast.com. Uh, finally, you can find Foresight Climate and Energy and Agora Enikvenda and the Regulatory Assistance Project all on LinkedIn as well. Uh, we'll be back in two weeks uh, talking about the recent gas crisis and how we can finally break our grasp on the fuel. Thank you so much for listening. 